0: Hi, I'm Robert Rodriguez of Something About the Beatles podcast, and I'm this week's guest on Metapod.
1: You're listening to Metapod, where we unpack the web's most interesting podcasts and the stories behind them, hosted by Wendy Morrill and Kevin May. Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of MetaPod. I'm Wendy Morrow.
2: And yes, hi. Hello there. I'm Kevin May.
1: Remember how we marveled at the number of episodes of Smart Enough to Know Better that Dan Beeston and Greg Waugh had managed to produce?
2: Yeah, well, that's actually up to 186 now, which is pretty great going, really.
1: Mm, and that was on the broad subject of science with so many elements to pick and choose from, in a way.
2: Now, I know where this is going, as our guest this week is Robert Rodriguez, who has, just checking my notes here, created a podcast of 232 episodes and counting.
1: Yes, that's 232 episodes on a single subject, The Beatles.
2: Yeah, that's right. So something about The Beatles is everything you wanted. to. To know about the 60s pop and rock phenomenon and probably heaps more that you didn't realize that you needed to know.
1: We spoke with Robert in March this year for Metapod not long after Peter Jackson's Get Back was released as you'll hear in our interview.
2: Okay let's start the tape. Uh, Robert Rodriguez from Something About The Beatles a very warm welcome to you and speaking to us on metapod this week we really appreciate your time
0: thank you so much it's great to be asked and uh, i was lovely meeting you guys and i uh, can't wait to uh, to get going with us
2: uh, okay let's let's do some kind of softball questions first just to kind of warm you up and get a sense of who you are before we kind of dive into more beatles stuff but mm. you know the podcast as i just said is called something about the beatles but as fairly succinctly as a super fan can do what is it about the Beatles that drives you to have created a 220-plus episode podcast.
0: To go that deep on a subject that seemingly, if you're not a fan, you would think, well, what is there left to talk about? I discovered a long time ago plenty because either new things surface, like the Peter Jackson Get Back doc, or you're really just finding angles or people that haven't been spoken to before, haven't written books haven't really gotten their stories out there. And a big part of what I try to do as a goal is it's not just, there's plenty of podcasts out there, especially now, and and there weren't when I started, on Mm -hmm. the Beatles and not having listened to them. So I'll I'll give you that caveat right off the top (laughs) because I I just don't have the bandwidth. You know, I need my ears if I've got the time to be editing or recording the next show. So I don't really have that kind of time. I, I do have the impressions from what I see and what I hear from other people that a lot of them are sort of opinion-driven shows or, you know, focusing on a a single album or a single project. And that's great. There's an audience for that. What I like to do though is sort of the same approach I took to my books. And that is try to get the history, right. Don't make too many assumptions about things, especially if you've seen it coming out of any number of books through the years or from the mouths of the surviving Beatles themselves or other writers, because they got the story their own history so wrong so much of the time and a lot of what gets put out there is self-serving a lot of it doesn't stand up to scrutiny and to me their story is such a miracle of two world-class songwriters existing as teenagers in the same town fortuitously brought together and it's like the big bang of 60s culture those two meeting and um everything that sprang from that it's like the reality is plenty miraculously, miraculous enough. I want to get the history right, because there's so much that from their story and what sprang from it, as fans, we're always looking to get to the bottom of, well, why did this happen? What led to this? You just want to connect the dots and reach some kind of insight with it. So to that end, I guess um, what my show boils down to is trying to bring in people that might have some kind of insight there are people that i call Beatle witnesses that actually knew them worked with them i've had on the show but there are also people filmmakers writers scholars and musicians that might have been inspired to start their path and end up being mightily accomplished because of their beetle fandom in one way or another and so if, if you've done something in life independent of the beatles let's say I ended up as a film producer or um, a musician with your own style that's not necessarily oh they sound like the beatles you could sound nothing like the beatles but it was seeing the beatles on tv or hearing this particular record that set you on your path i like Mm. to draw that stuff out of people because everyone's story is unique and yet when you hear somebody else's story you're like oh i totally get that that's cool (laughs) there's a universality about it and that's something i like to present
2: another question about you so we can kind of get a sense of who you are i mean if if someone was to describe you, whether it's a friend or a family member or a co-worker, to describe you and your work for this podcast, what would they say? Would they say, and I'm saying these words as respectfully as I can, would they say you're a nerd, a super fan, an obsessive, or perhaps one of the terms that I kind of consider is almost an academic of the craft and the, uh, the band?
0: I would say all of those apply because I think it's the nerd them, <laughs> the geekdom that all of this sprang from. I would say to anybody that asked, when I started to write my books, especially when it's something that's so well covered in literature, more so now than it was when I started out, it's like, why another Beatle book? And the answer is always, well, because nobody wrote the book I really wanted to read, which kind of distilled, deconstructed the story down into digestible pieces. And that was what I sought to do, as well as contextualize. Because the further you are, that serves the history to have some distance. But um, if, if you Are a younger generation fan and i'm not a first generation fan i came along my fandom started in the 70s well after the point they broke up the farther they are removed from the times that they were producing this work and their career was unfolding the harder i think it is to understand how miraculous it was if you see a music chart from the mid 60s and you see one of their singles paperback writer or something sitting at the top of the chart but you look what else is in the top 10 it's pretty amazing that you can understand why their work has endured when you see other things that came and went, but were very popular at the time, have sort of mm-hmm. faded away because you know, they were popular then, but they didn't have whatever qualities make a, a piece of work sustain itself. So I saw that as kind of my job is like, well, maybe you don't appreciate how an amazing record, I don't know, let it be is or something, but if you knew what was going on around it, or if you knew as it become now clear to the world from watching the Peter Jackson doc, they gave themselves this unbelievably tight deadline to produce a whole new collection of songs. And from that sprang, you know, one song springing up on camera, get back, three number one singles, an entire album and three quarters of Abbey Road, plus any number of songs that ended up on their solo album. So, you know, let's see what you can do in in 21 days.
1: (laughs) Robert, can you tell us a bit about how you... Went from fan or geek to super fan or super geek. I mean, what are what are the key <sighs> milestones of your journey to fa- super fandom of the Beatles?
0: I would say that um, initially, like so many other people, that when they become a fan and just absorb every single note of their records, and I say this in the context of there was no, nothing less cool than being a Beatle fan when I became a fan. Okay. Because that was when Led Zeppelin and Kiss and Rush and Pink Floyd ruled the earth. Mm-hmm. and it was We're going like, oh, to get your... to them later. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that's your parents' music or that's your older siblings' music. You know, that's boring. They're gone now. Why are you holding on to that? Mm-hmm. So it was kind of a lonely pursuit. You'd find other geeks and you'd cling to each other. But uh, mostly it was not terribly popular. But one of the things that sprang from that, this was, I knew I could write. Because in school, I tended to do well in those classes, but I had no real writing aspirations at that time. What I wanted to do was make music. And so the immediate thing was it led me to find other musical aspirational kids that I hung with and put bands together. And that was a direct result of being a Beatle fan, is like they made it seem fun and they made it seem doable. In the same way, once I started studying their stories, how they were smitten with Elvis is like this godlike figure, that made them want to rock. Not until Buddy Holly came along. Well, look, he's a geek like us. He wears glasses and, you know, he's not this guy projecting sexual, you know, charisma or anything like Elvis. If he can do it, we can do it. And the same thing in England with um, Monty Donegan and Skiffle. It it is empowering if you see some kind of model that is doing something that you love that seems doable. Mm -hmm. Now, this was of course delusional because the Beatles were of course master musicians. And once we started to figure out how they did their stuff, it's like, Whoa, you know, it's, it's, that's like a chord for every lyric, you know? So um, but it, it put us on our way. And so for many years, that was really what I wanted to do was be in a successful band and then life gets in the way and you, you start to kind of read the writing on the wall. And so it was really opportunity coming my way that led me to somebody who already had published a book saying, Hey, they're looking to develop a series. Might you want to write on something? Because they knew I was a big history geek, too. Might you want to write something? And so once I got a book or two under my belt, then I'm like, you know what? Beatles are my love. I really want to write about that. But what can I do that nobody's done yet? I know. I'll deconstruct their story and break it into, you know, cover the whole of it, but not make it like a book that you have to read from start to finish. You can go right to whatever chapter you want to read about. I want to read about their films. I want to read about their concerts, whatever. And then go where the history takes you. And that ended up being successful, led to another book and another. So I never set out to be the guy that wrote five Beatle books with more on the way. That was like happenstance. But I wouldn't do it if I didn't feel there was something legit to talk about that's a fresh angle on something. And the book that got all the attention when I wrote it now 10 years ago was the Revolver book because I saw that as like the pivot point in their history in a way that was bigger than Pepper and didn't get recognized. That was where they made the mental switch at least to start using the studio as a tool. They were still going on tour. They went on tour the very week that album dropped and ignored it like it didn't exist, you know, which is like, you know, who does that? A band putting on a new record. But uh, anyway, it was the becoming a writer and recognizing having now worked for a traditional publisher from both sides. They give a very small window to promoting a book and then they move on to the next thing in the pipeline. Mm-hmm. And the thought occurred to me, well, how can I, Keep the promotion and awareness of my product out there because I think what I did is worthwhile, and more people should discover it. So I started public speaking, and if you knew me back then, you're like, you know, you're antisocial. Why would you want to stand in front of a hundred <laughs> people and talk? You know, you hate people, and but it's like,
1: sounds like Kevin. it's not about
0: me. <laughs> it's about the Beatles, and people are here because they love the Beatles, not because they love me. And once you figure that out, it's like, okay, <laughs> I could do this. I could be the hand puppet, and. um that led to podcasting as a way that writing a book can take you easily over a year if you just focus on a single subject, but a podcast, you can turn around much quicker, get more immediate feedback, and you can drop in sound clips, you know, things I've been amassing for years and that sort of thing. I'd never heard a podcast before I started producing something about the Beatles. I'd never listened to one before, but I had a friend who worked in radio, who had a studio in his house, who knew how that whole thing worked they said just show up just talk you know we'll you know keep it on a a tightly focused subject don't just you know spin your wheels for an hour and uh we can do something with this and so it was a surprise to me i knew i had a little bit of a following from the books but i didn't expect so quickly for the podcast to take off and build an audience and it did it's like once you get on a treadmill it's like well, got to keep going now. People are expecting it and offering <laughs> suggestions. And there's there's plenty of things. Who knew there were so many things to talk about?
1: I have several follow-up questions for you. But I mean, did you ever have a fan club of a more traditional sort before the podcast?
0: Like people who followed me before the podcast?
1: Yeah, like a newsletter. I had um... a
0: Facebook page. Okay. And what I did was I, I, in fact, if you go to Facebook, it's called Fab Four FAQ uh, 2.0 which was named after the, the the first book I did on my own. The first one was a, a co-write. And then um, I did a, a second book on my own and just kept going. But uh, I tried to figure out what's a way I could keep content coming that will keep people interested maybe in checking out my book. And so I just figured on the format of an On This Day in Beatle history, mm-hmm. you know, do some kind of post. And then I expanded to rock history because come to find out, not every day on the calendar, the Beatles do something worthwhile. And so I figured, yeah, I know, right? But um, (laughs) since I'm all about context, it it made sense for me because then I can, if I focus up to 1980, which is the year John died, and when um, that second book is cut off, at least I could present what was going on in the world that all four of them operated on. So, Mm -hmm. you know, Dire Straits comes out with their album this this day and uh, Wings Mm -hmm. is on the chart too. It made sense to me. It's like, oh, people can connect the dots and say, this is the environment that they're operating in. So it was sort of an extension through the posts of what I was doing in my books anyway. So this was before the podcast. I did this in 2010. I didn't start the podcast till late 2013.
1: So no pre-internet fan club type activities?
0: No, just whatever I did on Facebook because you know mm-hmm. social media was still certainly new to me. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's taken me longer to really start to figure out Twitter and Instagram and YouTube. So more of that is coming, but that's relatively recent because it takes so much bandwidth just to produce the show
1: mm-hmm.
0: and it, to do them at the level at the quantity I like to do. So that was really in the public speaking because I was I hit like every library in the greater Chicago area, developed a series of programs and they kept having me back to do different evenings of Beatle uh, presentations.
1: As far, part of your fandom, are you a collector?
0: Good question. I know plenty of people that are, to the extent that they, if it has the name Beatles on it or their image, they want it. You know, the toys, which are like bottomless and things like that. Or the records. My God. Um, I stopped once I had like stereo and mono pressings of all the U.S. albums. And I had all the English catalog and Japanese pressings and the odd foreign ones. But um, mostly what I collect in Beatle World is paper whether it be books or rock mags of the sixties and seventies, because to me it's information. And it's mm-hmm. also for writing my books. People always ask me, did you interview Ringo? Did you interview Paul for your book? And it's like, no. And I had no interest in it because they're not going to give me anything valuable. It's more about bragging rights really, but they're such pros at their PR. You know, they're not going to answer anything meaningful and they are going to give you the well-rehearsed take they've been telling for years on anything. Well, what about Blackbird, Paul? And, you know, he'll trot it out word for word. And that's not valuable to me. I'd rather go to the source of what they were saying about their particular art at any given time before the history set in, before they knew how it would be judged. And um, there's plenty of that. They, they gave press conferences at every city they toured in, talked to the press all the time, the English Music mags at the time, NME and Melody Maker and Disc, full of interviews. Um, So that's the kind of stuff I collected. And that, to me, was a lot more useful for doing my thing than anything they would tell me now.
1: You've mentioned in one of your episodes, and I can't remember which one of the 200 or more, that there are bands that you like, but you don't necessarily care for the fan base of the band. I was kind of wondering if Led Zeppelin was one of those, but could you give an example and maybe, you know, how is the Beatles fan base different or unique than other fan bases in your opinion?
0: It covers a lot of ground for sure. It, it's not monolithic, not like any group. And it, it's, that's a funny quote to throw at me because that's like one of the most off the cuff, random observations <laughs> I've made on the show. but it, it, It's <laughs> absolutely true, but it's a, it's a funny thing. But um As far as the difference in Beatle fans, I've met them in every kind of context. I've met them any number of times face-to-face in my live talks, at Beatle conventions, at symposiums at universities, which is maybe a different kind of crowd. The people that write in about the podcast, because I get a pretty robust commentary every time a show drops, both on social media and on the website itself. So I hear from the fans and I interact with them as much as I possibly can. And I recognize they're all over the spectrum. The thing is that um, they mostly, especially if they follow my work, they want to know the truth. They don't want the sugar coating. They don't want the myth. There are other platforms that will serve their needs. So if they listen to me and they've listened to more than one or two shows, they know that that's what they're going to get It's some kind of honesty. So they're okay with that. They recognize I love the Beatles, even if I'm criticizing Paul in a particular episode or something like that they know it comes from love and that I'm invested in getting their history right. And it's not gratuitous slagging. You know, it's not bitchy like the press can be just to generate headlines or whatever. I I don't play that game just because it's not fun. But um, in general, I would say there's a lot of what we would describe as hippie values to Beatle fans, love and peace. Love is the answer. Embracing things like meditation uh vegetarianism things like that hardly I would not say it's it's across the board and I've known some people politically I would say on the far right wing that are still beetle fans which astonishes me mm-hmm. but it shouldn't mm-hmm. because you know the music is that good and you know there's it's like the bible you pick and choose what is of value to you you know to make it work for yourself and if right. they can ignore certain aspects of the Beatles career or personalities because they love here comes the sun that much then good on them <laughs> but i describe it as like a secular religion it is, is beetle fandom
2: right let, let me um, just follow up on something that you mentioned to wendy just a moment ago when have you actually ever approached any of the band members surviving band members to be interviewed on the show and if not based on what you said just a moment ago mm-hmm. have you ever had any feedback directly or indirectly from them about something or a subject or a particular episode? Um,
0: I've literally approached Sir Paul and mm-hmm. got within 10, 12 feet of him. It was not to invite him onto the show per se, but I had my revolver book and I was going to give it to him. And this okay. was after it was not even after a concert, it was after a sound check that he did the day before his concert in Chicago at Lollapalooza. And I managed to finagle an invitation into it and uh, sat through it which was the most amazing thing on earth and along with the other few handful of people got backstage before his security guy made it clear in no uncertain terms where to go when to do it like immediately so Mm. i didn't get to made eye contact um i've made eye contact with yoko before (laughs) but um part of the 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 purpose of the show is you want to get the history right and you don't want to go for the big name just for the sake of it if yeah. Wingo said, I'd love to come on your show, I'm not going to say no to him, but I know what it's going to be about. It's going to be about whatever his new project is, whatever his new album is, whatever he wants to talk about that. Mm-hmm. And I'm fine with that. But there'd be part of me that's like, you know, can we, can we talk about something cooler right now? But uh, I know that that's not going to happen. They're, they're not going to answer any question either because they don't remember or they're not necessarily interested in that moment. They're interested in whatever they're promoting at that moment. So yeah. as far as feedback goes, as far up the food chain as I've gone might be Paul's brother, Mike McCartney, known mm-hmm. as McGear, who's been on the show. And I have to think from some of the guests I've had on the show that Apple as a Beatles entity must surely be aware of it. Because I'm not the invisible man. I'm out there. Yeah. When There's been, like, for instance, when it was the 50th of Revolver, I was interviewed in Esquire magazine about it, and the show had already been, you know, well underway at that point. Peter Jackson now, I'm on his radar. He came on the show. That got a bunch of press. And so I have to figure that they are aware that this entity is out there produced by a guy with the same name as a film director. And maybe they think it is the film director, and they leave me alone. (laughs) I don't know.
2: When I was trying to find you on LinkedIn earlier today... I got the director before I got you. I do apologize. But now he you're didn't, on
1: Metapod, so yeah.
2: there's no <laughs> yeah. confusion. I, indeed, and yes, yes, and indeed. Kind of turbo. Over the um, the course of, we keep on saying 220 plus episodes, are there opinions or views that you had early on, which through your interviews with people and or your research that have changed? Oh, yeah, for sure. Can you, can you identify a particularly strong one or noteworthy one?
0: There were shows that uh, were done early on, I think, just for the sake of trying to cover a subject, not knowing how long the show would go on. And maybe this is the juncture to point out to people that for the first 122 shows, I had a guest or I had a co-host that I started the show with. He was uh, an English writer with um, some fandom, of course. And his point of notoriety at that point was being best friends with the guy who's regarded as the premier Beatle historian in the world, which is at least how people tend to think of him, whether such a title exists or not, is in the eye of the beholder, Mark Lewis. And um, we, we did the first 122 shows together. And in, in those days, we didn't necessarily have guests. Sometimes we would, sometimes we wouldn't It'd be more sort of back and forth, your side of the pond, my side of the pond, examining, diving into a subject together. So in those shows, I I don't want to say I disown them, but because they were done so early on and the show has evolved to a different place, I can never bring myself to go back and listen to them, for sure. But I am aware that some things were done for fun. For instance, we did talk um, about Pete Best. And Mm -hmm. back then, being more, especially when you got a partner that's going to egg you on to go places that you wouldn't necessarily go on your own, there was uh, a lot of frivolity to it. And I would be a lot more studious about it and less making fun of the guy now. In fact, I did because uh, David Bedford, who's another Beatle historian based in Liverpool, did a whole book on the history of the Beatles drummers. And he came up with a very unique thesis on Pete Best and his presence in the band. And as a drummer myself, I don't completely buy that Pete was a perfectly adequate drummer but I wouldn't mock him openly either. He did the best he could and, you know, has been gracious about what the world has thrown at him for the last 60 years. So yeah. you know, and maybe it's just maturation on my part. Um, another subject, and I pulled the show at one point because, again, it was with the previous iteration of the show. I don't know that I necessarily stand by what I said then just because things might have been a little more black and white. And the more I progressed down this rabbit hole of trying to take the historiography more seriously and hold it to a standard with a show we did on Yoko Ono. And I've been dying to re-examine that because not that I necessarily got the history completely wrong, but I think there's a lot of nuance to bring to it. Things are not black or white, for sure. And I think that um, if if you're aspiring to try to get the history well served, not necessarily or part your opinions out there as established law. People don't have to agree with me but i would like to at least put out things that are solid ground factually let them draw their own conclusions and offer you know dial back some of the opinion that would be an example of something that uh i would redo today and and hope too soon actually
1: have you ever been told that you've got it all wrong
0: funnily enough there is a, a recent commenter that um we did following peter jackson I knew even before Peter Jackson sort of manifested himself that um, once the Get Back documentary came out, I've got in the listenership and people that have become friends of, of mine personally, uh, a number of people that were in successful platinum selling bands. And I knew they were all Beatle freaks because they came to me said how much they loved the show. And um, some of them had been on the show before. And I, I wanted to convene a panel on people that, you know what, you've lived this life. You've been a successful... Rock musician, putting out album after album, going on tour. You know, it, you've you've lived a latter-day version of what the Beatles went through on some level. Not to equate them on any level, but certainly more than me and ninety percent of the listeners out there. So I'd like you to come on the show and give me your insights. What did you pick up on watching the eight hours of Get Back, Doc? And it was it was a wonderful three three one-hour episodes of that. But anyway, somebody wrote and goes, "You guys, in my opinion, don't know anything about the Beatles." <laughs> Okay, duly
2: noted. I think we can move quite nicely on now to the Get Back film. And we'll start off by asking you, if you worked for uh, RobertEbert.com, which is the, the, the famous film critics, now, he's now passed away, but his kind of legacy lives on with a film reviewing site. What right. would you give Get Back out of 10 if you were a reviewer for that website? And why
0: i think i would give it a 10 as filmmaking as film craft Mm -hmm. because certainly it suits my demographic as a hardcore Beatle fan if i were to judge it for the casual fan i would have to probably dial that back to maybe six or seven just because i think unless you're as interested in seeing and understanding all there is about the beatles it may be way too much for you but as I, i can't be who i'm not And I'm not that person. I'm a hardcore Beatle fan Mm. that would have happily sat through 50 hours of that stuff and not, you know, maybe sustained interest in some points through take 30 of Long and Winding Road as other times. But just because it's the kind of thing that just in the eight hours, every time I watch it, I pick up on something else. There's just so much there. And this is coming from a guy who studied those tapes. For years and years and years, (laughs) minus the visual for a lot of it, for sure. So, and also knowing what I know about what he had to work with and what exists and also what he left out. Thinking as a filmmaker, I can't really disagree with any of his choices, Right. which is to say maybe calling it a documentary might be stretching the boundaries of the term because there's definitely some finessing there. I don't want to publicly say everything I know about, well, that's kind of a distortion here because while that might be factually true, I also get to, look, he is a filmmaker. He did exactly what you do as a filmmaker to really put something in there that you're going to feel an emotional connection to. And and I, I totally understand both when you've got that low hanging fruit as a filmmaker, you're going to go for it. And also the fact that As he said on our show, you know, there might be conversations that went on for an hour or over a couple of days where you have to boil it down to get to the highlights of it for it to make sense. Now, one thing I can share that if you guys have seen it, I'm sure a lot of your listeners have, Mm -hmm. one of the uh, amazing moments that he presented so beautifully was the flowerpot conversation. The conversation as depicted with John and Paul after George quit, where they're being uncommonly frank with each other safe in the knowledge they have no idea that michael lindsey hogg has planted a bug there they yeah. don't think they're being filmed or taped and so they're talking freely with each other in a way that you don't normally catch and a lot of people ask this and we talked about it in the show is that you wouldn't know it if you didn't know what we know and that's during that conversation it wasn't just those two it was john and yoko and paul and linda and ringo but it's only john and paul that he focused on um and that that Part of the film, I get that mm. as a filmmaker, it makes sense. Keep it tight, keep it focused, cut out the distractions. Mm. But if you're trying to tell the true history of things, you might have made a different decision because maybe some other things coming from other people might have been worth putting on the table.
2: Yeah, personally, I think "Get Back" is an extraordinary piece of filmmaking. I think it's just terrific, and I I would like to watch it probably multiple times. Equally, your interviews with Peter Jackson were excellent. Thank you. Not least because I just love listening to Peter Jackson talk. I've watched far too many hours of him talking on the DVD extras for the Lord of the Rings film. Oh. So I'm a big admirer of him and I thought your interviews with him were excellent. But my question, really, Robert, is is there anything through your conversations with him or your viewings, I'm assuming it's plural, of the film now that you think, I didn't know that?
0: As he said in the conversation, and he's dead on. You know, to to state the obvious, if you read the written word, you've got one version of things. When you hear the audio, you're going to get a lot more nuance and understanding of it. And the example I Mm -hmm. used in that conversation was Lenin Remembers, which I thought was absolutely brutal the first time I read it as a young fan. Then you get the audio. and It's like, oh, he's making a joke here. He's being dry here. He's, you know, something that gives it a different spin that's beyond the printed page. Now add the layer of the visual to it. And so things that I'd heard the audio of forever as part of these bootlegs that we've been studying, now getting the visual, it's like, oh, I didn't picture it this way. Oh, I see their facial expression. Oh, this, you know, so you get a different layer of meaning out of it. So there was plenty I already had familiarity with it. Now getting the visual, I I, I get a deeper understanding. Something else as a general observation is that we kind of know and, and we've talked about it on the podcast over, you know, I don't know, half a dozen episodes, maybe more than that, when we talked about this project. But we know at that point in the Beatles' career of George Harrison's dissatisfaction with his role in the Beatles. They're keeping it a closed shop. They're not being as supportive of his new material, which is top rate at that point. He's on fire as a writer in January 69. And all this, plus the stuff happening offstage in his personal life, leads to to it coming to a head on the 10th and he he leaves and no intention necessarily of coming back but what i got more of a sense of in watching this and it's the stuff that's not apparent on audio tape it's just seeing what's going on in the room is how much they really did treat him as the younger brother
2: yeah
0: you know where something's going on and he as the interested party that he is Wants to make every record great, whether it's his song or not, is coming out left and right with all these great suggestions of finessing this material. And sometimes they engage him and sometimes they don't. You know, a lot of times I, I picked up on that sort of family dynamic of the younger siblings struggling to get the attention of the older siblings. Mm. It's like, wow, this is so graphic. Uh,
2: just last one on this, really. I mean, how do you think the film would have turned out in the hands of a different director? I mean, I'm thinking of somebody. Who's done other long form documentaries like Ken Burns or I don't know Werner Herzog or somebody mm-hmm. like that? Do you think he would have been treated particularly differently? On my notes here, I did put jokingly Michael Bay,
0: but I don't think I was <laughs> more explosions. <laughs> uh, Ken Burns' haircut notwithstanding, I'm not sure how big a Beatle fan he is, but I, I, I think that that is the uh, the key to this is Peter Jackson's Beatle fandom. He he made this as one of us. I think, yeah. and that that's why it is eight hours long. I mean, he, he said as much as, you know, they said there wouldn't be an extended cut, so he just went for it and hoped they wouldn't notice, and that's pretty much what happened. And that's so, kind
2: of the same as he did with Lord of the Rings, the yeah. six films that he made for those because mm-hmm. he was a fan and he just wanted to dissect the work. Sorry, I interrupted you.
0: No, not at all. But that, 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 that's exactly, it's making the point is that I think he wants somebody who is a passionate fan of the subject to get their hands on this. And so I don't know about those other directors. Yes, they are great craftsmen and storytellers. And certainly I, I had said on the show well before we knew how this was going to turn out, back when I think our understanding was it was going to be a two hour or so theatrical film, that I said, in a perfect world, a Ken Burns week long day by day chronological telling going through the material that way would be ideal because you wouldn't have to necessarily cut too many corners and you can get a great context of how the story is unfolding in the Beatles own heads, because it certainly evolved from where they were on January 2nd to where they ended up and just how things changed along the way. So that would have been ideal. I, I think that given what we have, he was the best choice for it as a passionate Beatle fan who wanted to err on the side of too much rather than too little.
1: Just to mention one other film that I, I personally liked was Eight Days a Week by Ron Howard. And the just the experience, the live experience and the touring experience that's focused on there. And the most memorable part to me was that just the overwhelming sound of the screaming fans at Shea Stadium. And that making it quite difficult to actually perform on stage. Are there other films that you like a lot?
0: I don't know um, if you guys will remember this, because it's been out of circulation for years and years. But before the anthology came along in 95, the best thing that we had as far as a telling of the Beatles story was something called um, Complete Beatles, which came out in 1982. It was narrated by Malcolm McDowell. And because it wasn't the Beatles attempting to craft their own narrative, this was like an outside filmmaker making it, it had a lot of perspective from a lot of relevant people around the Beatles, like a Derek Taylor, uh, Jerry Marsden, George Martin, people like that, Alan Williams. So it was really a broad telling and contextualization. And it was the best thing we had for years and years, I think, because they were limited in access to what they can get their hands on it it therefore was limited in scope in a way that anthology wasn't because the Beatles had been acquiring all this stuff and basically got their hands on absolutely everything but that's the trade-off when if they're going to be the ones controlling the narrative and they've got all the goodies you know if you're the one that wants to come along and have access to this stuff you're definitely going to feel the weight of what story is that they want to tell now we did a show on eight days a week and I think I'm happy to hear you say that you liked it because I think that it definitely has a place out there in film them for maybe an entry level into the Beatles story maybe the people that weren't aren't going to sit through the however many hours of anthology it is you know because that was like a 10 DVD set when it came out and that's a that's a lot you know that out Peter Jackson is Peter Jackson as far as that goes and there's still so much more to tell but um we as hardcores thought that they'd been short in eight days a week because it seemed to sort of bounce all over the place instead of really drilling down on the subject. I could have done without the celebrity talking heads. Mm-hmm. There's, there's plenty of people, witnesses that I've had on the show, like Debbie Gendler, who was in that audience in the Ed Sullivan show, whose fandom had preceded their arriving in America because somebody brought her a copy of the UK Please Please Me album. You know, her story is a profound one. There's other people like that. So that's the thing that gives me hope, you know, as far as uh, going forward with both the podcast and whatever I end up doing is that I think there's plenty of stories that haven't gotten the attention, that haven't been uh, watered down because that's the thing about Apple and the Beatles projects is instead of going archival in a way that the hardcore fans would like, they seem to want to swing for the fences with everything they put out there, like a Beatles one CD Which just the singles, the number one hit singles, instead of something going into the album tracks that are far more representative of their career, you know, to to really give justice to their story, they shouldn't worry so much about being bestsellers and just let the truth of what they accomplished come out and people will find it and judge it on its own. It doesn't have to be lowest common denominator. I think that's where they tend to err with things that they green light.
1: Would you say that the band had an impact on a specific country that doesn't actually get much attention and probably should get more attention, you know, aside from the U S and the UK?
0: I know that um, there's been histories written of the Beatles in Canada. And that's something that probably doesn't get as much attention because it's next to the U S in terms of their early figuring out the beatles and running with it before the u.s did you know in terms of releasing records there and um just things they did along the way i had tried to um when a guy came my way named bill Rotary who had been the general manager of capital records in the 1960s who handled john lennon when he passed through to do his, his bed in montreal and ended up recording Good peace of chance there in a the hotel room i tried to give his story of Fandom in Canada, you know, the Beatles have played there a few times and things like that. That would be one example of something that tends to be overshadowed. Um, Japan, certainly robust fandom there. Mm-hmm. Germany, West Germany back then. Mm-hmm. Um, not only was that the Crucible, the Beatles becoming the Beatles, but, you know, it was forever in their hearts and they, they toured there in 66. And even George back in 77, um, when he put out a, a solo album, 33 and a third, he made a point of visiting there. Astrid, Kircher, Jürgen Vollmer, Klaus Vormann, you know, all these key people in the Beatles' development as artists were from Germany. Um, India, another great place where certainly there's a, a robust, at least George Harrison fandom, because he brought so much light and attention to the culture of that country, um, both for good or bad. I know Robbie Shankar had mixed feelings about the sitar being adopted by rock musicians, because to him it was something holy not something you put down and smoke a joint you know it was was something that uh he had sort of mixed feelings about but at least it brought a whole new audience to that type of music that genre that he was uh, a master of so those would be ones i would point to off the top of my head as the beatles sort of you know touched by the hand of god then touched these places and left them different because of their presence because of the base of love that sprang up
1: and for the show i mean are there you obviously look for unique perspectives, but are those harder to come by, I guess, is one question. But are there any themes in people's perspectives changing over time, of the time that you've been studying? Like, is there more interest in, you know, I think you've talked about uh, the women, a woman's perspective of the band. Um, mm-hmm. Are there new angles, new themes that have come up in the last 10 years?
0: I, I think as more access to information comes out. Whereas, you know, some very good books were written decades ago that were as good as the information that they had access to. Uh, one being 1977, Nicholas Schaffner, Beatles forever, excellent book at the time, but he didn't know everything. And there was things that he put in there that we now know are less than factually accurate, but that was the best he could do at the time, but it was a very good book. And, um, I think as the Beatle literary canon has continued to develop, I, I think there's less and less demand for the simply repeating stories that have been out there forever. Feel good books that just you know keep them on their pedestal, as it were. I, I think that um, certainly with the younger generations who are less exalting of the Beatles as these mythic figures that say people from the first generation baby boomers knew, you know that they them on the pedestal and keep them there whereas you have younger fans who look at john Lennon. oh you mean that druggie that beat his wife that guy you know they're less respectful of the persona that older generations have mm-hmm. and therefore i think they're a little more critical and a little more demanding of the history that gets put out there if it keeps him just to use him as the example on his pedestal i think they're going to tune it out because the last thing they want is more pr and i find it curious that there were two books coming out that promised to sort of strip away some of that myth last year. One by an insider of the Lennons who worked at the Dakota as their gardener, a guy that went by the name of Mike Tree. And another by a respected journalist who's written extensively about rock, as well as the Beatles, one of the best books on the Beatles' business dealings called You Never Give Me Your Money, Peter Doggett. Both of them had books that were due out last year. Both books got spiked by threat of lawsuits from the lenin lawyers so that to me speaks of a desperate desire maybe not as legacy time we don't know how many years yoko has left as she's ailing to really control the narrative after she departs and to me they're making a mistake i think that people are going to see through that and tune it out and the pedestal you're trying to keep him on it's going to fall away because the generations coming behind aren't interested in your previous generation's myths they want to coin a phrase give me some truth i think in what i've seen through the years i've been doing the show in the years of being immersed in this world there's a bigger demand for taking the spin-off of things it's like we can handle it you know we know george harrison was a flawed human being for as high as his holy aspirations were you know was a womanizer you know, went through his bad periods of drug use and this stuff none of them are saints but Given what they accomplished, being human like the rest of us, it's still pretty miraculous. So nobody's looking to, to crucify them at this point for being human beings. To me, putting the humanizing stuff out there enhances their legacy, if anything. They did all this while having these issues they were dealing with
2: you 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 might look down on us or or more particularly me for asking this question but it's something that i've heard debates on by whether they're fans or uh, casual fans and it's who would you say had the biggest influence on the beatles of these two is it epstein or is it george martin would you say
0: Oh, I mean, that's something to look down on. It's different aspects because they weren't, if they just had to survive on their music, then certainly George Martin and he was invaluable. One thing that I think should be picked up by people who have watched get back is because the project morphed halfway through it originally was going to be a live concert for TV and therefore mm. he wasn't involved on the ground floor. He would pop in just to lend support and keep an eye on things. But uh Glenn Johns was brought in because it was about a concert for TV. They weren't making an album. That changed after George's walkout, and then they decided, well, we're not going to do a big concert. Let's just film ourselves making this album. And that's when George Martin kind of stepped up. So I think ultimately it's not an accident that out of all the Beatle albums, Let It Be has always had sort of this, this sort of taint on it, if any one of their albums does, because neither fish nor fall. They abandon it. Phil Spector came in and put all this orchestration on it, and it is so far removed from what the original intent was of being organic and live, all that stuff. And I I think that the missing secret sauce there is George Martin being involved intimately from start to finish. You know, Mm. Absent that, it would have been a more solid album, unquestionably. So with him handling the music and being the facilitator to whatever depth his role was, certainly higher at the beginning where he was showing them the ropes, certainly high point of collaboration with Pepper, after that, they're sort of seizing the reins and kind of you know, marginalizing him as they're sort of developing their own autonomy. But then they bring him back for Abbey Road. So they intuited, they knew they needed him. For musical matters, indispensable. I don't think we'd be here having this discussion had they had any other typical producer of the day who would dictate the terms, tell them what's what. They wouldn't have had the career. They wouldn't have this co-explorer with them, pushing them to develop their art and broaden it beyond the parameters. But none of that would have happened absent of Brian Epstein,
2: who. Oh, well, I'm had, glad you said that because I don't feel so silly asking the question
0: now. Oh, <laughs> not at all, not at all. I mean, it, it, it's it's silly in that um, why does it have to be zero sum? You know, why is it one or the other? And all this Fifth Beatle, who was right. the Fifth Beatle? Was it Billy Preston? Was it you know whatever? <laughs> um, th- they had sort of plateaued as a club act. They were the biggest band in Liverpool and big on the Hamburg circuit, but couldn't get arrested. Otherwise, their aspirations which were in marked contrast to a lot of their peer groups who just wanted to make a living. You know, you didn't hear Jerry and the Pacemaker saying they want to be bigger than Elvis or, you know, the big three, we want to be the Goffin and King of England. You know, they, the Beatles, absolutely right out of the gate, had these high aspirations for themselves. And they were the only ones that believed that. You know, there were plenty of other people that liked them, would help them, like an Ellen Williams. But um, it took O'Brien, this guy who had failed his previous creative endeavors that found in them the perfect vessel for achieving his flair for presentation, yeah. for engagement. And, you know, you know just everything that had sort of been thwarted in his, his background to that point, they were the perfect vehicle for it, you know? Yeah. And so it was a match made in heaven and absent his vision in, you know, Lenin would chafe at, well, you know, he knocked the edges off and put us in suits and made us safe and we didn't swear on stage anymore and all that stuff. Well, you're the one that wanted to be a millionaire. You're the one that didn't want to have to get a real job. You're the one that wanted to be bigger than Elvis. You know, that was the key to it. That's the trade off. You know, if you're you're not happy, you can give your millions back. But, you know, he made it happen. So wearing that tie wasn't that bad deal, was it? And and so. That that it was a masterstroke, and there's plenty of people that will like look at it in purely monetary terms. Well, he cost them millions, and he, you know, signed all these bad deals and all this other stuff. He was writing the script as they were acting it. Okay, he learned from it along the way, but everybody else benefited from the door he kicked open.
2: Okay, so our last couple of minutes here, and we're going to try and do some. I think the the, the phrase is some rapid fire questions, and we'll see how you get on. Okay. So, uh, Robert, the first one will be from me. Do you have a favorite Beatles cover by another band?
0: Ooh, that's a tough one. I would say if I had to give a, a quick answer, because it's a favorite artist of mine doing a favorite song of mine, Peter mm-hmm. Gabriel, Strawberry Fields.
2: Okay. I'll give you mine because Wendy and I were discussing these before. And mine is Dear Prudence by Susie and the Banshees. Oh, very good. Okay, Happiness, Wendy.
1: Happiness is a Warm Gun by The Breeders.
0: Excellent. Okay. Very good.
1: Robert, the first album that you bought with your own money. The Red album. Okay.
2: 62-66. That was, that was the gateway drug. Okay. If you could travel back in time and watch one Beatles show, which one would you like to have seen?
0: Star Club. What year was that for the unknowing that are tuning in now? It would be, um, they, they did three different stints in 62. I would say the one in December of 62 that got recorded. So Ringo's Aboard. They've got Love Me Do out and released. So it, it's the turning point. That's okay. where they're segwaying from being a club band to a recording artist band. And so seeing them at the tail end of that, by all accounts, they didn't want to be there. They want to be back in England, but they had this contractual obligation. You listen to those tapes. They don't sound like a band going through the motions. They're on fire. Okay.
1: Yeah. Next question. Do you dream about the Beatles, Robert?
0: <laughs> With all uh, due respect to Mr. Sheffield, probably not. I mean, they pop up sort of in the background every once in a while, but uh, I've never, that I recall, have a dream of like interacting with them as people or anything like that.
1: Okay. No nightmares.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's what I'm like.
2: Okay. And the last one then, Robert. So you've been given the very awesome task by NASA of creating a time capsule that's going to be sent off into space. What album track and Beatles film made by them would you put in it for some distant life form to find and digest oh,
0: interesting
2: so album track and beatles film
0: album track tomorrow never album knows. album
2: okay. and a track
0: oh okay revolver Hmm. tomorrow never knows okay and um film yeah. uh i would put uh magical mystery tour in there why to confuse people <laughs> 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 maybe they can figure it out <laughs> <laughs> oh yes, it's it's uh, with great clarity. This is what it means. Well, good. Explain it to us,
2: Robert Rodriguez from the Something About the Beatles. Thank you so much for joining us on Metapod this week. We really appreciate your time, and we'll see you again.
0: My great pleasure.
1: Thanks, Robert.
0: Thank you. This is fun. <phone rings>
2: thanks to robert rodriguez there purveyor of all knowledge regarding the beatles
1: it's a great show and it sounds like robert intends to wade through and analyze even more beatles history
2: another 232 at least i reckon
1: perhaps so if you've enjoyed our interview this week or any other episode of metapod then you know what to do
2: And if you don't know, here's a quick reminder. Please go to the place where you listened to this episode and leave us a review. But please, only the good ones and always rate us highly too.
1: That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time. That's it for Metapod this time. Thanks for listening. Metapod will be back soon with another unpacking of the web's most interesting podcasts. But in the meantime, make sure to subscribe at any of the usual places you find your other favourite podcasts. We'd hate for you to miss upcoming episodes, and we'd love it if you left us a review. You can let us know what you think of this episode by going to metapodshow.com. We'll see you next time. Metapod is produced by Wendy Morrill and Kevin May.